Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends, Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Evening. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Great to see you guys. Well, talk to you guys. Good to see you too. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and if you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Also, make sure to stick around till the end of the show to hear what we think are some inspirational woodworkers to follow on social media. So let's get right into it. Guy, you've got our first question. Me, I'm up, I'm up first. You're always up first when I'm, when I'm the host with the most. <laughs> I don't know. I don't pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> I just wait for my name to be called. Okay, so this, this is from Brian. And Brian's asking, have you ever made your own plywood from solid wood for projects? I'm thinking a void-free core of walnut plywood would allow me to use it in projects where the edges could be exposed, unlike traditional veneered plywood, and also give me some dimensional stability. Your thoughts or tips? Again, from Brian. Uh, yes, I have, but not all of one species. I made some of my own poplar core plywood once because I needed five-eighths inch and I couldn't source it locally. So I made my own and I veneered over the top of it. Now, what he's what he's really wants here is so that he doesn't want to have a, a plywood edge that he's got to leave exposed. I'm not a big fan of exposed edges on plywood either. So you could make it out of solid walnut and you'd get the stability because it's cross-hatched or the grain goes one way and then mm -hmm. the other layer goes the other way. And then you have the glue and everything. So dimensionally stable, yes. Expensive, yes. What I do when I want to not have a plywood edge is I'll take the plywood and I will dimension some lumber, mm -hmm. let's say in this case walnut, to the same thickness as my plywood. Most uh, Baltic birch is 19 millimeters, uh, which is a little shy of, a little over three quarters of an inch, or a little shy of three, three quarters of an inch, I can't remember exactly, but it's about three quarters of an inch. And you mill the plywood at, or mill the, uh, some solid walnut at the same dimensions at, or the same thickness as the plywood and just edge glue it to the side. Yep. And then you veneer over the top of that. And then you have a solid wood edge and the veneer on top. That's what I would do unless I'm making a, like a curve or something like that. Uh, right. You guys ever do anything like this before? I've yeah. done this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead we. Uh, I've done the same thing where I've uh, put uh, solid wood on the edge or actually even made edge banding out of solid wood and then just glued it to the edge of plywood. But I've not made a whole... A piece of plywood out of the shop. I've just bought Baltic birch or or maple ply and the, and then veneered that and then used a, a solid edge to create the edge that you talked about, uh, guy, and then just veneered over top of that altogether. And making my own plywood, I just hadn't had the desire or the need to, but I can understand having that you know stability. It, it makes sense. But how about you, Sean? The last time that I, I don't even know if you would call it this, but I made the, uh, the backrests on my bar stools and I used, 
uh, three layers or five layers, I think, of mm-hmm. cherry. So technically, I mean, yes and no. Um, it's not a full sheet of plywood or anything, but I did use multiple layers of cherry, alternate the grain, and made my own backrests out of that. And I've also yeah. done it the, the way that Guy mentioned. I do have a question. Brian's not liking the exposed edges, but if you do, you make your own your own plywood. I mean, you're going to have end grain mixed in the uh, the sheets as well. Right. Um, is is he just? But it would be the same color at least and the species. Well, I mean, it would be the same color, but I think you would still see a difference. Yeah. But I mean, it's just small detail. I'm just curious if. Um, just wanted to touch on that. You're still going to see a difference in the in the end edge. It's not going to be like a traditional piece of walnut or something like that. You're going to see end grain mixed with edge grain um, on that. Yeah. So on your on your backrest, you said you did it. Were they was this like a bent lamination or? Yeah, bent lamination. Okay. Now That's I've a- done that. I've done the uh, bent bent stretcher before. Yeah. Using uh, nine plies. But you didn't alternate the grain patterns. I didn't. No, I did not. No, yeah. I did not. Yeah. On my back, I did. I alternated the grain pattern. Huh. Okay. Okay. Well, why, and you do well, see in well, grain. Well, yeah. What was the uh, reason for that, if you don't mind me asking, Sean? What was your- uh, Primarily just to, uh, at the time, I was thinking that it would add stability to it by alternating, because these are big panels. And they're, they're well, I say big panels. They're not big panels, but they're they're fairly decent sized panels. And I just wanted to rotate the grain to, uh, to keep them stable, I guess. Huh. That's All something right. to- Definitely consider in the future when I do that. Yeah. But, you know, to, to answer your, your question, Brian, if it were me, I would just edge the plywood and then veneer over the top of the plywood and the solid edging that you put on there. Mm-hmm. And just to interrupt real quick, Guy, your video that you made that media cabinet out of Walnut, mm-hmm. you actually did that, didn't you? Yes, I did. I didn't want to mention that because I thought it was a shameless plug. But uh, yes. I got you covered. Thank you. you. On the last video I have posted on my YouTube channel of the, uh, the media console, I show how I did that. And you can't tell it from, you can't tell the difference between that and solid wood. That's the nice thing about it. Yep. Yep. For sure. All right. Okay. I think I've got the next one. This is from Brent Jarvis from clean cut woodworking. And he says, we're not, we're not taking questions from, well, hold on. He says, shh, don't let Guy know I asked another question. How can uh, I not know I'm sitting right here? <laughs> with as many jigs and templates that are made for your projects through the years, what do you do with them? Oh, he says jigs and templates, sorry. Do you make them one time, use them, then toss them out, or repurpose them for other jigs, aside from the obvious ones that are traditionally used in the shop, cross-cut sleds, tapering jig, edge-joining jig for the table saws? At what point do you say, you know what, I think I'm going to keep this one? I've always struggled with the ideas of spending the time to make the jigs and templates, even though that I won't necessarily be using them again in the next six months, then just trashing it. Just curious. Well, my mindset has changed a little bit on this since purchasing a CNC machine. And uh, in the past, I would typically save all the templates because I figured maybe I could use the curve from this one of my, you know, on this existing template and save time making another template. Or if I use a circle cutting jig, um, maybe there's a, another chance that I will, uh, use this circle template on something else in the future. And I would just have them all stacked up. Um, now that I've got the, uh, the cheat machine, you know, I'll just throw them away unless it's something that I'm going to, I know for a fact that I'm going to be using over and over and over. Uh, but making templates can be time consuming. So I totally understand sure. that it hurts to throw away the templates after making them. So if you're going to use it again, or you think that you could use it, uh, on another jig or template later on, and you don't have a CNC machine, obviously, I would keep it. 
I wanted to uh, to let's get a conversation going as far as jigs. What, uh, to name some of the few that I have, I'm not going to cover all of them because I'm going to leave some for you guys to talk about. But the new bandsaw dovetail jig that I made, and I'm not going to talk about the video that I have where I show you how to use it, but I do keep <laughs> oh, that. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll mention it later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the veneer joining jig uh, and a tenoning jig. I'm going to stop there and bounce it to you guys. What are some of the jigs that you've made or templates that you've made that you keep around in your shop? Dovetail bandsaw jig. I, I kept that tapering jig i kept that just because it's one that can be used it's an adjustable one but i've also made a couple of template you know tapering jigs that didn't apply to that adjustable one like maybe it was a really acute angle or something like that and they were just a one and done type thing you know yeah i mean tapering jigs are are really simple to make they're not that difficult to make so you know I, i don't mind throwing one of those away or just kind of tossing it or giving it to somebody how about you guy the only jigs I really keep, I have a, I do have a, a shop made dovetail jig that I use, mm-hmm. and that was from a, I think it was Matt Kenny did an article on it, maybe. Mm. I know you've yep. you, you've used it, Twe. Yep, yep, I um, kept that too. Yep. Yeah, I have that, and what about some of your veneering jigs? Well, I, I really don't. There's really no jigs for veneer. I've got a a, a couple that I use for the radial sunburst patterns that I'd seem to be doing a lot of lately. Yeah. Uh, the different degrees, you know, like thirties and 45s and stuff like that. Um, I've, I've got a tapering jig and I think I have the same one that you have. We, which is the, yep. I think it's a, I think it's Steve Lotta or Bob Van Dyke. I can't remember who it, it's one. It's, I can't remember either. It's, it's one, one of, one of those. Two, it's one of those two guys. Yeah. And that's a fine woodworking thing also. Yep. Uh, yeah. But most of the time, I only use that if I have to do four-side tapering. Yes. <clears throat> if yeah. I need to just make a tapering jig, I just take a piece of MDF, CA glue a couple blocks of wood to it, and that's it. Yeah. And I'm good with that. Um, yeah. And then I throw it out. I'm like Sean. Most of the templates that I make, or pat, I should say patterns and templates, I, I that's what I use my CNC for. Yeah. I don't have space to to keep that stuff around. I know a lot of guys that, that do a lot of template work and, you know, they have, you know, 80 bazillion templates on the walls of their shops. That looks really cool. I just don't have the room for it. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind cutting up a piece of MDF to, to make a jig of for something I've, I've made before. Now for simple curves, like the curve for the dining table, I just recently finished. I could probably recreate that. I've actually, decided to keep it for a little bit, even though it's like a really long curve, because I don't know, I'm, I, there's a possibility I might make one in the future or something like that, but I, I can store it in the attic. It's not a big deal. It lays flat. But what about like some of the like green and green jigs, like some of the uh, splines and some of the uh, pillowed uh, jigs, pillowing jigs that, uh, that you did for that uh, green and green clock that you made? Because I've kept some of those. I didn't. No. Okay. No, because they were <laughs> they were small. I mean, and I have you know, I when I did the video for that, I made them by hand. But yeah. I also have a PDF of it, so I and a SketchUp drawing, so I could easily just cut it out on a CNC machine. If yeah, I yeah, that's true. Okay, I, you guys with your CNCs. <laughs> what about the um, some some type of joinery jigs? Like, do you guys have any mortising jig? Well. 
Hui probably doesn't. Um, I've seen some folks make, you know, dedicated mortising jigs and, and whatnot. Do you guys have any of those? Nope. No, but I, I could imagine if you are uh, using those, those are definitely, I, I would imagine those are ones that you'd want to keep around because a lot of times they're made to be adjustable and used yeah. in a lot of different applications. So it would make sense to keep those. Yeah. I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of store-bought jigs mm-hmm. or, you know, things that manufacturers have made. And I know this goes against uh, what a lot of people believe. I really prefer the manufactured jigs mm-hmm. for a lot of stuff. They just seem more durable than something I've made out of plywood in my shop. I don't get any, I don't get, and it really comes down to enjoyment. I don't get any enjoyment from making a jig. It's completely utilitarian for me. I would rather, instead of spending two or three hours or an afternoon in my shop making a jig, I'd rather just pay 50, 60, a hundred dollars and just have it. That's exactly what I did for my spline jig. I bought one on Amazon and so worth it. So worth it. <laughs> so uh, it's spline, nice. splines for like box box corners and things like that. Mitered corners. Yeah. Is that what you're talking yep. about? Okay. Yeah, it's so worth it. I'll have to look for one. <laughs> yeah, I'll. I'll yeah, I'll Rocker see makes one too. Okay. Yeah. The uh, the last thing that I'd like to mention are the right angle clamping jigs that I made out of MDF. So handy, super handy, easy to make, cheap. I made way too many of them. I made like ten or twelve when I first made them, and only needed like two or three. But hey, send me some. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was actually just talking about that today that that I needed some of those. Well, I know a guy that also has a video on those. I'm not going to say his name, but Oh jeez. Yeah. I know it's terrible. Did you, did you cut like those on, did you did you cut those on the CNC? No, I did not. I did them by hand, but I I'm debating on making some on the CNC machine, some smaller ones. You should make some smaller ones and put your little logo on there and sell them. Yeah. Ah, well, it's a possibility. <laughs> Yeah. You have it. Dig- you have it digitized, right? Um, no, but I could in like ten minutes. Okay. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. So Anyways, it's a forty-five degree angle. Yeah, yeah with a couple of little notches. <laughs> it's real hard on SketchUp. <laughs> All right. Uh, yep. Well, there you go. Uh, what's his? What did he say? His name was Bordeaux. That's what he said. His name was <laughs> to try to hide from Guy. Hope that Francois helped, Bordeaux right? or something like that. I, I think yeah. it was from Bordeaux, France. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we. All right, so this is actually the second half of a question from Bohan. He asks, I am making a pair of side tables that are based on Philip Morley's table design from the number 275 fine woodworking issue. I've scaled it down and modified it to be a side table more than a dining table, proportionally shrunk all the dimensions, increased apron size to fit the shallow drawer uh, in it, and added a low shelf. But I'm trying to keep a similar look to his original piece. So I am using his technique for to create the legs, which have a curved taper, and Phil achieves this shape with a two-sided jig that runs along a flush-cut trim bit. My legs are two in, two and five sixteenths inch thick at the thickest part. I bought a flush cut bit, bottom and top bearing, that is two and a half inches long. I intend to cut real close to the line so that I don't have much material to remove. Good, you should do that. But I am still a little nervous about it when I think about how tall the bit is. I have never used such a large bit before and would like to know 
what special considerations to take. Should I be consider concerned about the stability of the bit when it is that tall? Deflection is not a thing with router bits, question mark. Anything I should do to ensure successful, safe operation, any suggestions to speed, such as speed for that bit, uh, what advice do you have overall? So, so, so first of all, uh, I've done a cut that is that big with a bit that is that tall, two and a half inches. Um, it is a little scary because it'll it's quite a bit of uh, bit that is exposed, but- That's quite a bit of bit. <laughs> That's quite a bit of a bit. Yeah, it's quite a big bit. Um, but you've already mentioned cutting, you know, as close to the line as possible so that you're not getting uh, a lot of chatter from from the bit. Also, uh, make sure that you're always doing a downhill cut, you know, just so that you're not going to get a lot of tear out and also a lot of chatter from, you know, going against the grain. Uh, for that bit, I believe 1800 RPM is what uh, most manufacturers recommend for anything. 1800? Or 18,000. I'm sorry, 18,000. I was going to say 1,800, man. That thing would barely be moving. <laughs> 18,000 RPM is, I believe, what is recommended for three quarters of an inch or less. Is that correct? Am I right on that? Yeah, I, I just think. turn your router up to its highest speed. And yeah. Um, uh, any other, you know, any other suggestions that you guys might have? Uh, am uh, I missing pivot something? Pin. Say again? Pivot, pivot pin. pin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah router use the fence. As, mm -hmm. as much as you can support the piece pivot pin yep. if you're using the pivot pin i don't know if you can use the fence at the same time but it all depends on your setup yeah uh yeah guy have what you, you got i was gonna say you know make sure you're routing downhill but we mentioned that the only thing I, you know using a bit that big or i should i shouldn't say that big that tall mm -hmm. it can be as intimidating as heck the first time you do it my suggestion would be is to make a, a pretty large, get a large piece of MDF, put some Dostecki style clamps on it, or the toggle clamps, mm -hmm. clamp a big piece of wood down there, make sure your hands are about four or five inches from the blade or from the bit and practice a couple times. Yeah. Doing wood that thick with the bit that up high. Build your confidence level up mm -hmm. because if you're, if you're, doing your final work for the first time, your confidence level isn't going to be that high. Yeah. And I think if without confidence, your, your chances of making either a, a catastrophic mistake on the, the piece or worse yet, a, a safety concern can happen. Mm -hmm. Practice a couple times, get used to the bit being up that high on that thick of a piece of wood and just get your confidence level up and say, okay, now I know how this feels. I know what my feed rate should be. Yeah. And you get all that stuff down first if you're unsure. Yeah. Good, good point. I think mine, I think mine was the best point. There you oh, go. hundred percent. There is no way my answer was better than that. <laughs> both, uh, both Sean and I can attest, make sure that you properly tighten your router collet. Am I right about that, Sean? Yeah. I don't know what, oh. yeah, look, it ain't me. I'm oh. not going to name your names. Oh. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I think uh, that uh, that wraps up our first round of questions. And before we go to our second round of questions, we'd like to thank our very first sponsor, Maverick Abrasives. Mm -hmm. Maverick Abrasives is a family-run manufacturer of all things abrasives, such as sanding belts and sanding discs. Their manufacturing facility is located in Anaheim, California, where knowledgeable abrasives and sanding experts are on call Monday through Friday to answer any sanding or finishing questions you may have. 
Check out their wide assortment of sanding discs on their website, whether you use five hole, eight hole, or Festool hole pattern, they have you covered with the best prices on the web. To top it off, they have free shipping on orders $200 or more, so check out Maverick Abrasives for your sanding and finishing needs. With that, Guy, you've got our next round of questions. Okay, and I've actually got it queued up and looking at it, so I'm, I'm well, ready to go. Well, well. <laughs> it's right after your first one, so I'd hope so. <laughs> yeah. Man, man we're, we're um, in for a treat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is from Dave, and Dave is saying, I, I know at least one of you uses the lead dovetail jig. That would be me. Do you guys have lead dovetail jigs? I do not. I want one, but I do not have one. Okay. Yeah. I would like so that, one. that would be me. Just wondering how well the jig is made, if the tail and pin boards align, and if there's a lot of tweaking to get the jig working properly. He has a Porter Cable 4216 jig, and I've been trying to get this to work for a case I'm working on. I was having some problems with the tails and pins being about a 16th out of alignment. I took many measurements to be sure that the tailboard is centered in the, the template, only to discover as I loosen the template it could shift side to side by more than a 32nd of an inch. That's not good. Yeah. There are a few other things. I'm not crazy about this jig and just wondering what your experiences, what your experience have shown using other jigs. Thanks for asking all, answering all of my previous questions. Huh. Dave, how did he sneak another one in? <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. What Dave, what Dave, you're not allowed to ask. You and and um, Brent Tarvis. Brent, Brent and yeah. Eric. Eric, yeah, <laughs> boy, you guys take advantage of us. Change Anyways, your name, fellas. That, no, thank thank thanks guys for sending in the questions. We we couldn't do this show without them. Um sure. I'm just kidding. So I'm just kidding about anyways. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> Yes, I have a lead dovetail jig. My lead dovetail jig is a model, I believe it's a 1600. It was discontinued a number of years ago, and I bought it when it was discontinued. There have been some improvements on the new lead jig. I think it's the Pro D4R or D4R Pro or something like that. Yeah. The jig I have is awesome. It's a extremely well-built, well-machined tool. It's as good as any other tool that I've used as far as the, the quality of it, the quality of the instructions. I can't recommend a lead dovetail jig enough if you're in, you're in the market for a dovetail jig. The, the, the thing with me and dovetails is I only do maybe two or three things a year where I'm actually using dovetails in a project. And if I am, I got to learn that how to use that jig all over again. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things where you just can't, the, the Incra for the smaller boxes and stuff, I can motor through that really fast because I've had it for, you know, over 20 years I've been using it. Yeah. But like the, the lead dovetail jig, I got to read through the manual. I actually, before, if I know I'm going to use it that day, I, they sent me a little, uh, a disc, a DVD. Yeah. And I watched I watched, you know, part of the DVD that pertains to what I'm doing so I can <laughs> not have to screw around so much with the the manual and and stuff when I'm out there doing it. So, uh have, have you guys ever used dovetail jigs before? Yeah. Like the Cable uh, or the Lee? I'm not going to name any names of any brands, but I used uh, a cheaper one that was probably in the 
$150 range and it was garbage. I didn't, well, I didn't have any luck. I'm not going to say it was garbage. I did not have any luck. After that, I uh, swore them off and said, I'm not going to buy anymore unless it's a lead dovetail jig because I mean, everybody that know that has one really enjoys it and it does a great job and it's customizable. Can't you move the, the stuff around the pins and the, yeah, you can move the pins stuff? around and you can actually make the, the pins wider. It's, it's got a lot of different adjustments on it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you can make it, you can make it look like hand cut dovetails, you know, yeah. those like kind of thin English pins or whatever. Uh, no, I, you can't, you can't do that. Is the quarter inch shank the smallest you can go? Yeah, I mean, you, you have the, the, the shank of the bit. I mean, okay, there, you, okay. yeah, you're, you're not going to get any, okay. anything smaller than, you know, like almost three-eighths of an inch, actually. But yeah. that's still, I mean, for, for for a pretty wide drawer or a carcass, I mean, that's still going to yeah. look pretty. But pretty you, can, you, can get, you can still get different, you can change the spacing. Right, right. And you can also change the size. Which gives it a more customizable look, whereas like yeah. some of the other porter, like the porter cable one, it's it's set and done, and there's no other way that you can do it, right? Yeah. Well, it depends on which porter cable. I'm yeah. sorry, Sean. Go ahead. I, I was just going to top that off by saying I've not heard any negative comments regarding the lead dovetail jig, and that's pretty much all that I'm going to say on the matter. I don't have one, but I've never heard anything negative about them. You, you know who I uh, I know recently used it pretty extensively for some of his furniture was uh, Gary Ryeski. I think he was one of the recommendations that you had uh, for yeah. an inspirational Instagram account. And I actually talked to him and he said, yeah, you know, you just, he, he really loves it. And he used it, the Lee dovetail jig, and he had one test piece. He got it dialed in within that test piece and then he went to town with the rest of the carcasses that he had to build so yeah that, once it's pretty- once it's dialed in and you know what you're doing you can pound out a lot of drawers and dovetails pretty fast yeah yeah i have not used a router based dovetail jig i i really would like to have a lead dovetail jig but Again, it's one of those things I haven't done it enough. And I think when the project comes along, for instance, a uh, chest of drawers or something like that, where I'm going to do a lot of dovetails, and I think maybe I'll look into getting one. But right now, it's just not in the cards. So, And I would probably try to get a used one. I'd try to see if there's one on eBay or something like that. I think that's where you got yours, right? Yeah, I got mine on eBay. I said it was discontinued, but it was brand new in the box. And I think I paid like $200 for it. Yeah, it was a steal. Yeah. It was one of those things where they had, you know, on eBay where they have a buy it now price and then people are trying to bid on it for two or three bucks. It's like, yeah, "Yeah, it's well worth 200 bucks. I buy it. For sure. For sure. So, All right, Sean, I think you've got the next question, buddy. All right. This is from Matthew. Uh, I have been a weekend woodworker for about five or so years, as Tom permits, with three kids and a busy schedule. I'm working out of a three-car garage that my wife and I both park in. I use 1.5 bay currently. I use 1.5 bays currently. And uh, when I do not have a project, I move equipment so that I can park. I do not have an assembly or an outfeed table to work from and often use the garage floor. And that's frustrating. I'm looking for a space-saving option for a table, preferably one with dog holes so I can clamp to route, biscuit joint, and other assembly work. I currently do not have hand tools, i.e. hand saws, planes, chisels for heavy-duty hand tool work. Maybe one that is portable, like Guy's outfit table, as I have an ink or a table saw fence as well. I don't know if a Festool MFT3 would be a solution, as I could store it when not working slash assembling. Maybe a storable outfit table, as well as a storable assembly table, might work. 
I don't think I'm ready for a handful of workbench just yet. My father-in-law had a, has a production cabinet door and countertop shop with a large industrial CNC machine and could cut a festool style top out of MFT out of MDF. Sorry. That would not cost me anything out of pocket. Is that a good option? Any recommendations would be appreciated. And I took this question because I'm currently debating on making myself a new assembly slash Alfie table. And the main thing that I would, I would like to go smaller and try to save space. And I think I could possibly include, include features that Matthew mentioned. And one idea that I had floating around in my head that I want to hear from both of you guys as well on and to get your opinion on is to a make a table that's probably three foot wide, four foot long, and that's mobile, obviously with the workbench type casters that you pop down to move it, pop them back up, and then it's setting, you know, on the base. Yeah. Uh, I'm not completely sold on the construction of the top, whether I'd go with a thinner top, like maybe like an MDF sandwich or possibly even hardwood, like a workbench top, but I would probably put 20 millimeter dog holes along one edge. And then I could use the accessories like from Festool or TSO products that would allow me to use a track saw and, and, and potentially future items like a router or whatever. And I would have some cabinetry on the bottom, but you'd have to make room for the dog holes. And on one edge, I would probably put a Lee Valley twin screw vise or some sort of in vise to give me mm. the clamping abilities. But again, the vise would dictate what kind of top or what kind of approach I take on the top. And just a couple of small little things is I'm not sure if I would include any T-track right out of the gate, but I'd probably leave that or keep it out of the plans for the beginning. And the last thing is I'd route holes for the miter gauge slots. But that's kind of what I, I had in mind for a potential outfeed slash assembly table. And I'm sure you guys are going to pick that apart. What would you change or, or improve? I don't use my outfeed assembly table as a hand tool type tool. So, or a bench, excuse me. So I think uh, making it just out of MDF is going to be perfectly fine if you're just clamping things to it and making sure that things remain square or using it as a reference for, say, your domino or your track saw. I really don't see it being an issue being just made out of MDF. I think it'll be perfectly fine. Yeah, I guess when I said the the clamp or the vise is you got to be able to mount that to something. So if you just have a sandwich of two, three quarter inch pieces of MDF or one piece of MDF, I guess I'm throwing the vise in there to try to give him as much of an option as possible on the small footprint of having a two in one. So that's kind of why I threw that, that vise in there. I, I think you could beef up the end to include uh, such a, such a vise. I don't think that's going to be an issue to do that but you'd have to beef up the end in order to make it so that uh uh, you have some purchase power with the uh with how you're gonna be attaching the the device itself yeah yep guy um you got any input on that or yes well he doesn't care about hand tool stuff yeah yet yet so a vice i don't see a, a, a proper woodworking vice is probably not a necessity. At least not now. I just don't see how you can now. build if, furniture if and not have a way to hold hold the pieces, hold the wood to do something to it. You can do that. Like look, with my outfeed table, it's not an MFT3, but it's got a festival top on it, an MFT top on it. I've got tracks going horizontal. I can clamp stuff to the side of it. I mean, I can't plane a six foot long board on it, but, you know, I can do end grain. I can edge banding. I can clamp to it. I can do edge banding. I can, you know, cut dovetails if I was crazy enough to do such a thing. I could not live without my MFT3 type top with all the holes in it. I use it constantly. 
it's just so handy to be able to clamp stuff directly to the middle of the bench sometimes. It's just wonderful. If I was in Matthew's shoes, and I understand that he can have a, a, a festival t- style top made out of MDF that would be free. However, if budget isn't really an issue, I would get the MFT3 Basic, which doesn't have the uh, the guide fence and things like that. It's just a, a table with the you know the aprons around it, foldable legs with the top on it. And you could get all kinds of accessories where you wouldn't need that rail to do the cross cutting and all that. There's there's plenty of uh, options out there. And when you're done with it, you could fold up the legs and put it to the side. Yeah. I really think an MFT3 would be a really good fit for you, Matthew. Yeah. Rather than trying to re-engineer or yep. reinvent something, this is going to work right out of the box. You're not going to have to yeah. design something and you can hit the ground running. It's just, it folds up and it goes out of the way. This goes back to what I was talking about before. Sometimes it's just easier just to buy the damn thing. Yeah. Now that's just my two cents on it. No, it's a good point. It's a good point, especially considering that he's, you know, everything's very mobile. If it can fold out of the way, then, I mean, he's going to have to, if he wants that type of portability or mobility, he's going to have to try to engineer, you know, folding legs or make it so that it can be broken down easily. Yeah. And that's, that's what I have as my outfeed table. Right. I mean, I had to make my own custom rails. I mean, it it all took time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Keep in mind if uh, one bad thing about having one table that serves both purposes, if you are gluing something up on it, you can have to, you won't be able to use the table saw. I learned that the hard way when I only had one table. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's also the problem with having my MFT three style top as my outfeed table. I'm doing stuff on that, that I can only do on that. Cause I have a full size, you know, like a three by six, almost, almost over six feet torsion box top assembly table, but I still do a lot of stuff on my MFT3 style top. It gets in the way of my table saw. Right. Yeah. Cause it, it you know, it's, I, I want to, I, I, it's like, Oh, I got to rip something. Damn it. I can't move it now. Yeah. So yeah. I get into that issue as well because my outfit table is also my assembly table is also my MFT top. So it's like, Oh, you know, I'm doing a glue up. I can't do anything else. Right. That's it. Okay. Here's so. the ultimate, here's the ultimate fix for you, Matthew. Move into a 3,000 square foot shop <laughs> with plenty uh, of room and you won't have any of these problems. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just think that these kinds of questions are hard to answer because we don't know, we know what you currently, what you're currently doing, but we don't know what you have planned. Like you say, you currently yeah. do not have hand tools, but are you going to? And that's what led me down the path of, I would look at in, including some sort of vice because you can, sure. you know, oh, I it's just, it. it's, it's really hard to, uh, sometimes to, to answer these because, you know, I go down a completely different path. I want to, I want a completely decked out one-stop shop and, you know, on that yeah. type of table, that's where my mind goes, you know, but if you want to just, if it's all about doing a few things and then putting it up, doing a few things, putting it up, then yeah, MFT would be the way to go. For sure. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I've got the last question. And this one is from Peter at Mr. Downing Woodworking on Instagram. And he says, hello again. Some advice. These guys, they they, they (laughs) put in so many questions. Oh, jeez. 
<laughs> Hello again. <laughs> Some advice brainstorming sort. Uh, I am building a puzzle building table. If you are unfamiliar, it is essentially a large box with a very shallow bottom so that the puzzle can be built on that surface. Two large leaves then fold over from the ends to cover the entire top, and it can be used for other uses when, when the leaves are folded up. Here's a product I'm using, and he sh shows us a link. Because of the leaves unfolding and draping over the short ends, I need the end to be flush across, so normal legs with the rails mortised in won't really work as insetting the rail isn't possible with the hinges. And flush, to me, won't look right. The ones I've seen on the internet build a box, a big box, then attach the legs inside the corners. I'd also like the legs to be removable so that it can be transported more compact as it will be pub height of about 40 inches. I'm wondering what attachment method you might use to lace the legs on the inside corners, preferably removable, but also sturdy and not racking. The rails will be about eight inches wide, still designing. Any ideas? So I kind of thought about this and actually I did something kind of similar when I was making a child's play table. And what I did was I made the apron and then I stuck a corner block or a, a corner rail. It, it supports the corner essentially. And then I notched out the leg so that there was a flat facet on the corner, the inside corner of the leg. And that registers against the corner block. And then I used a threaded insert and then drilled through the corner block and used a bolt to connect the leg to the corner block. Oh, I'm so, I'm so confused and lost now. <laughs> it's nested inside the corner of the apron so that it doesn't rack, essentially. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if that's you're able to visualize that, but do you guys have any other ideas as to uh, how to make legs removable within an apron? So it's inside the apron and not mortised into the legs. And removable. And removable. Yeah. No, uh, no I have no, no, no suggestion at all. You could probably do it pretty easy just, you know, with the, just some screws that attach in and just put a bolt on or put a nut on there and secure it like that. But they're not going to be sturdy at all. And I, I don't know of any type of removable leg that is sturdy. There's folding legs that are not bad, but removable. I don't know about that. I, I will recommend a video on YouTube. Um, Paul Jenkins from the Wood Knight made the Wood Whisper gaming table and he made the legs removable. And he really? used... Yeah, he huh. used what they call kerf mount corner brackets. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he used those, um, and I've not followed up with him, but I imagine he, you know, he he likes them and they work well. Uh, but you can check those out. I know Rockler sells them. They're kerf mount corner brackets for table aprons. The reading Peter's question, I was more, I was more thinking of like an easily removable and storable thing. The, the, those brackets you're talking about, Sean, that's not like an easily removable and storable thing. It's, you know, it's, I mean, there's screws. I mean, it's nothing that you're going to be able to just fold. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it says, it just says prefer, preferably removable. I don't know about storing them. So that, I mean, that's, that's about all that I've got. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Peter. Kerf mount corner brackets. So the kerf mount corner brackets are what I thought of, which is, uh, cutting a facet so that it fits in the corner of the corner bracket and then 
you know, registers to the, uh, did you literally say those two? Cause, uh, I guess maybe I was too busy. No, 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 no. You said the other one, you said the curve mounted corner bracket. Gotcha. Yeah. These you've got four screw, five, uh, two, four screws and one bolt. The bolt connects through the middle into the leg. And then the apron has a little, uh, cut a little rabbit, um, for the, for the bracket that just has regular screws that connect to it. Removable. I think it'll work with his design. Again, it's actually kind of a similar concept as to what I was suggesting. Ultimately, it comes down to it's, it's one point of attachment and it might not be nearly as tight as something that's mortise and tenon into the leg itself. So, my, you know, you got to do some testing. I don't know. It all depends on the acceptable tolerance because yeah. if he's needing it to be removable, mortise and tenon is not going to be what he needs. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So it all depends if it, de- if it doesn't have to be removable, don't. But if you yeah. need it to be, those are your options. Yeah, I don't, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll link to, a, um, to Paul's video. He shows how to install those and talks about the actual brackets. I watched it. That's a, that, that was a pretty good build he did on that. Well, cool. Cool. Well, that's the last question. So let's talk about the woodworker highlights that we have featured for this week. Uh, Sean, who would you like to highlight this week? Woodworker highlights. Ooh. <laughs> woodworker highlights. We need, we need we need we need theme music for that. Dun, da, da, da. Sean, who do you got for us? <laughs> a nice, nice try, we. I got Thomas Moser account. Um, it's their business account at T H O S Moser, and they show a lot, a lot of inspirational pictures. They're not going to show behind the scenes how to stuff, but man, do they make beautiful furniture, like a beautiful chest and blanket chests and dressers and chairs and beds super beautiful, beautiful high-end pieces, expensive, but high-end beautiful pieces. If you're wanting some inspiration, definitely give them a follow. I mean, there's so many stuff, ideas and designs that I would love to copy, steal, but copy on so many pieces that are just, man, it's just amazing. Uh, That's T-H-O-S Moser, Taz Moser, Thomas Moser. Guy, who do you have for us? I've got a company called Purposeful Design, and it's P D indie on instagram they are a uh, faith-based nonprofit, and they actually post some pretty good pictures and every now and then you might see me in some of those pictures so mostly we build uh, or they build uh, tabletops credenzas do a lot of uh, live edge stuff on metal bases some pretty creative stuff goes on over there it's it's definitely worth the follow Very cool. All right. So I've got Meredith Hart Furniture, and she is a North Bennett Street School graduate. And uh, she's uh, she does a lot of uh, traditional joinery techniques and a lot of uh, carving in her pieces. Uh, She takes a lot of traditional forms and then marries it up with some contemporary styles. She's very innovative. She's out of uh, Durham, North Carolina. Beautiful pieces, especially her chairs. Her upholstered chairs are absolutely gorgeous. But she also does some side tables and uh, some credenzas and things like that. Uh, Beautiful casework as well. Uh, check her out. I think you'll uh, I think you'll really like what she's what she's got going on. So I think that wraps it up for this show. So please remember this podcast is here to answer your questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through our Instagram page at woodshoplife. 
We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate, appreciate your support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All my links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, guyswoodshop.com. Sean, how about you? You can find me at simplecove.com and simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. All right. Great. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll hear from you in a couple weeks. All right. We'll see you. See ya. Bye.